Well, it's good to be here and start the new year together around God's Word this evening. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 9. Mark 9, and our passage this evening is verses 38 through 41. I'm going to actually go ahead and back up and read beginning in verse 30, just so that we have the whole flow of this passage up to uh, where we are right now. So I'll begin reading in Mark 9, beginning in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." Well, in this passage, we're considering broadly the cross and sanctification. Jesus is again teaching his disciples about the cross. And as they are confronted with the reality of the cross, their need for growth in Christ is, continues to be exposed, as is so often the case. When we come to the cross, we find how desperately we need the cross and how desperately we need Christ and his continued work to change us more and more into his image. And so we've looked at uh, back in verses 30 through 32 that the cross exposes your need for growth. Jesus is teaching the disciples and yet they still are not able to understand. And then on Sunday, from verses 33 through 37, we considered that pride keeps you from serving like Christ. Pride keeps you from serving like Christ, and, and pride is really at the core of our problem when it comes to becoming like Christ. We are proud, and that pride is at the root of the, of the fleshliness that exhibits itself uh, in our sinful choices and our selfish choices, 
even as we learn more and more what it is to have a mind like Jesus Christ. And that self-promoting spirit that the disciples uh, exhibited in their words, uh, their proud words against one another, uh, demonstrated that pride keeps you from serving like Jesus Christ. And then this evening, as we come to this passage where John probably is answering in somewhat of a defensive manner, well, okay, we'll accept one another, but what about this person that we saw doing something in your name and we tried to stop him? What about him? Right? Is that, is that not how our pride often operates when we're taught and convicted about something? We want to deflect and say, well, what about them or what about that person? And it would seem that that is what John is trying to do. And, uh, you know, how often does our attempt to defend ourselves actually end up becoming a self-indictment? which is what happens here with John, if we could only hear ourselves sometimes. You know, do you have, how many of you like hearing recordings of yourself? It's terrible, isn't it? But how good it would be if we could just hear sometimes what we're, what we're actually saying and how it's coming across. So John here is attempting to defend an action of exclusivity we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But in that attempt to defend the action, he reveals a proud and critical spirit. And so the theme that we're going to be considering this evening is that pride criticizes others who are serving Christ. Pride criticizes others who are serving Christ. And it's in God's mercy that he deals with the core of our fleshliness, our pride, so directly. You know, pride is an awful burden to carry. It's an awful burden to think that we're the final judge for everyone around us. It's an it's a awful burden to think that we're the one that has to assess the motivations of what people are doing and why they're doing it. And so when the Lord addresses the pride of our heart, it is out of his kindness and mercy to us to expose our constant need for him and to lead us back to the cross where he has paid the price for our sinful pride. And when we recognize what Christ has done, we with joy confess the pride of our heart and rejoice that the guilt of our pride is taken away because of what Jesus has done for us. And we constantly need to be reminded of that propensity to our heart. And in this, in this incident, we see one of, one of the other tip, uh, one of the other marks of pride. It, proud words come out. And there's a tendency then also to criticize others, not just anybody, but even others who are serving Christ. So the cross is exposing our need to growth, for growth, and exposing our pride, which is the great hindrance to Christ's likeness. So let's look at John's words here as 
He addresses Jesus after he's been corrected. He and the other disciples have been corrected by Jesus. John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Well, John here is expressing a critical spirit And a critical spirit that is neglecting the importance of the cross will often express itself in this kind of sinful exclusivity. So first of all tonight, we're going to consider the characteristic of a critical spirit. The characteristic of, or a characteristic of a critical spirit, and that is sinful exclusivity. Sinful exclusivity. And and I put those two words together on purpose because not all exclusivity is sinful, is it? You know, Pastor Don took us through the Beatitudes uh, in the fall, and it's exclusive, right? Those who are blessed are those who come to Christ with a need of of their poverty. It's those and only those. And there's a a right exclusivity in what Jesus is communicating and who is blessed. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, as we look around and look at others who are following Christ and observe those who are serving Christ, so often our pride gets in the way and we express a sinful exclusivity that grows out of a critical spirit. And what's happening here? Well, John says they saw someone casting out demons in the name of Christ. So there's this unnamed exorcist, and the disciples observe this person serving Christ. He's casting out demons in the name of Christ. He's acting in the name and under the authority. When when John says in the name of Christ, the, the indication is that he's embraced the authority of Christ. He's embraced who Christ is and some kind of confession of Christ and of all of Christ is. And he's acting for the cause of righteousness. He's acting in a way that's opposing wickedness. He's casting out demons. He's engaging in conflict against what was evil. And so they're observing this man who is serving Christ and who incidentally is also successfully doing what the disciples had failed to do a few few verses earlier. They were incapable of casting out the demon from, the, from that man's son. And here's someone who's successfully doing what they were incapable of doing. He obviously is following Christ. He obviously is serving Christ. He's engaging in the conflict against evil on the basis of a confession of Christ. It's interesting that in Acts 19, I won't have you turn there, just reference it. But while Paul was in Ephesus, there were some Jewish exorcists who also were attempting to cast out demons, the seven sons of Siva. And they were doing it in Jesus' name, but it was not embracing a full confession of who Christ was. And the demon says, look, 
Christ I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And he jumped on them and attacked them. Right? So there, are, there were attempts, we have attempts in Scripture of people trying to serve Christ, but for selfish means, without embracing in totality the, the authority of Christ. But here, from what we can gather, this man, this unnamed man, this man who's not one of the twelve, is indeed serving Christ out of a confession of Christ and effectively opposing evil. So that sinful exclusivity begins by observing others who are serving Christ. But then it also opposes those who are serving Christ. Look at what the response was. And, you know, from what we see, John is speaking in uh, as representative of the disciples. He says, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So the disciples here essentially engage in a pharisaical spirit of division with someone who is effectively serving Christ. You remember back in chapter 3, Jesus was accused of casting out demons by whose power? By Beelzebub's. And he made the case that if the house is divided against itself, it can't stand. And here, the disciples are essentially doing the same thing. Here's a man acting in the name of Christ, but in their mind, they think that he should not have that authority, and so they try to stop him. And so they're engaging in that same pharisaical spirit of division with someone who is effectively serving Christ. They're dividing the house. So that sinful exclusivity is observing someone serving Christ, opposing then that person who is serving Christ, and is obsessing over minor differences. Why did they try to stop him? Because he was not following us. John was concerned that the man was not part of the twelve. Lord, he's not a part of those that you've chosen to to follow you. And so what he's doing has to be wrong because he's not one of us, right? I mean, we're the chosen ones. And so there's a nitpicking over a minor difference when the man is acting in consistency with a confession of the, of the person of Christ and in consistency with opposing the enemies of Christ. And, and John says, well, but, but he's not one of us. That kind of exclusivity obsesses on minor differences. One commentator, uh, James Edwards, makes this statement, and I'll expand on it a little bit later, but it's a good statement to put in our, in our mind here at the beginning. The kingdom of God is larger than our experience of it. And I'm going to clarify and expand that later, but that's an important principle. The kingdom of God is larger than our experience of it. We can put it in other terms. We're not God. We don't see all. We don't know all. The kingdom of God is larger than our experience of it. 
And the spirit of sinful exclusivity focuses on non-essential differences then while dismissing a confession of Christ and consistency of fruit. And that whole statement is important, right? The, the, the sinful exclusivity that we're talking about focuses on non-essential differences. Well, you're not part of our specific small tribe, while dismissing a confession of Christ and consistency of fruit. He's acting in the name of Christ and he's acting in opposition to evil, to the enemies of Christ. That kind of sinful exclusivity grows out of a self-righteous spirit that in this case has been pricked by conviction at the foot of the cross. And so that sinful exclusivity attempts to minimize the service of others in order to exalt self. And, and you know, we, we think about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, but he was also one of the sons of thunder. And a little bit later, the next chapter actually, again, when remember when Jesus tells about his going to the cross for the, thir- for the third time, what do James and John do? They want to sit at the right hand and the left hand, right? There, there's a, a spirit of pride uh, still, a spirit of, of a desire to exalt self that we see again come through in explicit terms there in Mark ten twenty seven. And that's the nature of that sinful exclusivity. It's, it's focusing on that minor difference, focusing on minor issues to the exclusivity or dismissing a, while dismissing a confession of Christ and a consistency of fruit. You know, eventually, eventually John had to deal with the same Spirit in another man. If you look over at Third John, chapter <laughs> verse nine, there are no chapters in Third John. Third John nine and ten. John writing this letter says in verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. So what's John dealing with with Diotrephes? Well, he's dealing with a spirit of pride in that man, same spirit that the Lord had to deal with him about. And so often, so often as we follow Christ, Christ deals with us and our pride in preparation for the things that he'll have us deal with down the road. When working as, a, as an administrator in a Christian university, we often had to deal with 
sin issues and discipline issues in, in students and the man who was the supervisor of our department and the dean of students would often say, you know, I've, I've never dealt with a student for anything that I myself wasn't guilty of. And, and there's a sense that as we follow the Lord, He shapes us, He changes us, He deals with our prideful tendencies. And as He does that, there's an aspect where He's preparing us also to continue to disciple others in that. And so this is, again, an instance of Jesus, of this pride coming out in the disciples' heart and of Jesus dealing with that in preparation for these men to become fishers of men, for them to be the foundation of the church. But doesn't it just totally eliminate any, any uh, sanity around canonizing these men as anything other than sinners saved by grace? That's all they were. Yes, they had a unique place in the establishing of the church, but they were sinful men who Christ saved by the merits of his cross and who Christ changed and discipled over time as they followed him. Well, we've looked at the characteristic of a critical spirit, sinful sinful exclusivity. How does Jesus deal with that? Well, let's look at verse 39 where Jesus responds. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Well, let's look secondly at the cure for a critical spirit. A cure for a critical spirit, and that is Christ-centered generosity. Christ-centered generosity. Not any generosity, not endorsement of everyone all over for all reasons, but Christ-centered generosity. How does Jesus respond? John said, we tried to stop him. Jesus said, do not stop him. Do not stop him. And, and the first aspect of Christ-centered generosity is really simple. Obey what Jesus says. Obey the commands of Christ. Right? When we look at what Jesus says through the Gospels, when we look at the instructions of Christ given to us through the epistles, as the epistles fill out for us what life in Christ looks like, and, and we're confronted with Jesus' words, the, the beginning point of dealing with our pride, the, the, the beginning point of dealing with our tendency for a critical spirit and for sinful exclusivity is to bring ourselves under the authority of Jesus' direct words and obey what the Lord says. Bring ourselves under His authority. And that's where we start. We, we can't... We can't 
be characterized with Christ-centered generosity if we're not submitted to Christ. And so here Jesus says, look, don't stop him. Don't stop him. And I think we can see from what John already told us why Jesus said this. He was acting in Jesus' name and he was opposing Jesus' enemies. He was opposing evil. So Jesus says, don't stop him. Stop stopping him. And Jesus goes on after that simple command and explains, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus says, don't stop him. Why? Because he's an, he's an ally. He's acting in my name. He's acting having embraced who I am, having embraced my authority. And so, John and disciples, as you follow me, you need to obey my commands. Don't, don't stop him and acknowledge and understand the value of allies of those who are following me. Yes, they're not, he might not be part of the 12, but he's acting in my name because, again, the kingdom of God is larger than your experience of it. We have many other passages in Scripture where we, we see this same Spirit come through. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul tells the Corinthians, look, no one can call Christ Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If someone is accepting who Christ is, if he's accepting the authority of Christ and acting in Jesus' name, if he is putting himself, making himself even vulnerable for the sake of Jesus' name, you, you, can't, you can't accept the authority of Christ. You can't call Christ Lord unless there's been a spiritual work in your life. In Philippians chapter 1, in verses 15 through 18, if you remember, while Paul is in prison, he makes this very generous statement about those who preach Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says, the one thing that matters to me is that Christ is being proclaimed, that Christ is being served. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples, the kingdom of God is bigger than your experience, and those who act in the name of Christ, those who carry out the the, the mission of Christ, those who oppose evil under the authority of Christ, anyone who does a mighty work in my name is not going to soon turn against me. The one who is not against us is 
for us. Reminds us of what Moses says in Numbers 11, verses 27 through 29. You remember there were a couple of people prophesying in the camp and someone ran up to Moses. These two men are prophesying and Moses said, oh, would that all God's people could prophesy. And thank the Lord, one day that will indeed be the case. You know, what, what is it going to be like, just kind of stepping aside here and projecting, what is it going to be like in heaven when all God's people are there perfected? praising and worshiping and serving God without the presence of sin. And because we're all in heaven, we know we're all God's people. What joy, what, what bliss, what a thrill to be worshiping the Lord together with all of God's people. But down here, we are so handicapped so often by our own pride from enjoying and appreciating and being thankful for others. Yeah, they might not be with us, but they're serving Christ. And so Christ tells his disciples to acknowledge the value of allies, of those who serve in his name. He goes on, in verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Another aspect of Christ-centered generosity, it obeys Christ's commands. That's where we start. We acknowledge the value of those who are serving in the name of Christ and we rejoice in the rewards given by Christ to others. Right Here's a man serving in the name of Christ, and he's casting out demons. And, and Jesus, though, takes it to what we would consider probably a lesser work and says, look, you know, here's a man serving in my name, and he's opposing evil. He's casting out demons, but you need to understand, truly you need to understand that whoever just gives you as a representative of Christ, as a part of Christ's body, whoever gives you a cup of water, this simple act of service, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Christ is the one who ultimately rewards. Jesus views the smallest acts of kindness to his servants as an act of kindness to him. What an encouragement this is to us. When we think of serving Christ, and we think of how little we do for the service of Christ, but Jesus says, look, even the smallest act of kindness in my name to my servants, to my people, I, I know it and I acknowledge it and I reward it. Disciples, 
You need to replace your sinful exclusivity and your critical spirit with a Christ-centered generosity. You need to understand that Christ is the one who judges his people. And there's some irony in what Jesus says. You know, Jesus is so gentle and sometimes subtle, but yet direct. Look at, look at how he words verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Do you see what Jesus did there? Jesus says, look, disciples, you belong to me. Right, you're, you're my disciples because you belong to me and therefore I tell you how to view other people who also belong to me and who act in my name. You are not autonomous. You belong to me. And so when we think about a Christ-centered generosity, and take what Jesus says, you belong to Christ. A Christ-centered generosity rejoices that you belong to Christ. And when we begin to think about what it means that I belong to Christ, when I think about who I am, who I was apart from Christ, all of the horrible things that I've done in rebellion to Christ, my sinfulness and my pride against Christ, and yet I belong to Christ? Who am I to say, oh, look, he's casting out demons in your name, and we, we tried to stop him. Well, he belongs to Christ, not to you. And so when Jesus states the truth that he rewards those who give a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, he's reminding the apostles they do not have the prerogative to judge like that. Now, sometimes we, you know, people might come to this passage and think, well, okay, does that mean giving a cup of water to drink? Is Jesus talking about, you know, that's how you earn salvation? Well, the whole context here is certainly not about earning salvation. It's dealing with people who have named the name of Christ and who are serving in the name of Christ. I think what William Lane says is helpful in this regard. The reference to his reward carries no thought of deserving or of merit, for there is no way in which a cup of water may be conceived as meriting participation in the kingdom. It serves rather to stress God's awareness of all who share in the extension of Jesus' work and to emphasize that there are no distinctions between trivial and important tasks. There is only faith and obedience shown in devotion to Jesus, and wherever these qualities exist, they call forth the approval of God. You belong to Christ. 
And you belong to Christ because of Christ's mercy, because of Christ's grace, because of nothing in yourself. And when you begin to think of yourself as the object of the kindness and the mercy and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, that that is when a Christ-centered generosity replaces the sinful exclusivity of a critical spirit. You belong to Christ, they belong to Christ, and not to you. Turn over to Romans chapter 14. The issue is a little bit different, but probably has the same core. As Paul is dealing with distinctions among believers, those who eat meat, those who don't, distinctions about unimportant things, yet things that could be stumbling blocks. And he's instructing them in how to show love to one another. And we're not going to go through the whole passage here, but I just want to bring you to a statement that Paul makes in this regard as he's instructing these Roman believers who, are, who have a tendency to judge one another. In verse 4 of Romans 14, he says this, "'Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another?' It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then down in verse 7, he goes on and says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this is the end that Christ died and lived again, that, we might, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? You see the case where what Paul is centering his case around? You belong to the Lord and they belong to the Lord. Stop judging one another in these things because the Lord is the one who is the judge. Live in love toward one another because you belong to the Lord. Another passage where Paul makes a, a strong case for our need to trust in the Lord in these matters is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 1, he's defending his authority while also instructing the Corinthians, about their tendency toward divisiveness. You know, and as we go to these passages, all we're seeing is that what Jesus is dealing with in his disciples there in Mark 9 is, is a spirit that, that permeates, that can permeate God's people. It's a spirit of pride that arises with consistency. And this is what he says in chapter 4, Beginning in verse 1, this is, how we, uh, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 
But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. What's Paul doing? He's warning the Corinthians against a premature judgment. Now, there likely is a question in some of our minds. Okay, so does that mean that we should never pass judgment? Does that mean that we should set aside discernment about anyone who just claims to follow Christ? Well, to answer that, again, back in Mark, what is happening? This man, whoever he was, he confessed Christ and his works were in consistency with following Christ. He was opposing the enemies of Christ. And if you turn to another passage that John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, this time chapter is appropriate, chapter 4 of 1 John In verses 1 through 6, John tells those to whom he's writing to not believe every spirit, but to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And he continues on, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, so first of all, the answer, the simple answer to... Is, is Jesus telling us that anyone who does anything and just names the name of Christ, that we should just leave that until Christ comes? The simple answer to that is no. Because there are false teachers. The devil does clothe himself like an angel of light. We are called to discernment. And as John goes on, look, let's just look at what he says about those who are false teachers. What is it that characterizes false prophets that have gone out into the world? Picking up in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. So first of all, is the question of whether someone confesses Christ as he's laid out in Scripture. Christ in the flesh, the God-man. Verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Another test. Okay, so someone says, I'm speaking in the name of Christ. All right, but, but what is his audience? Is he speaking from a worldly point of view? 
And is the world listening to him? Well, if you, you can name the name of Christ, but if you're preaching or so-called preaching, speaking from a worldly perspective and you have an audience with the world, with the enemies of God, false prophet, false prophet. Verse five, again, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And the third test in that passage is a a recognition of apostolic authority. When John says in verse 6, we are from God, whoever knows God listens to us, he's speaking about the apostles and the unique authority they have as, as the revelatory agents of Christ. So again, the, the purpose of the message tonight is not to go through what false teachers are. I'm simply pointing out that what Jesus is talking about and what Jesus is dealing with with his disciples about here in Mark 9 is an issue where you could say with people who have passed the first John 4 test. From every appearance, people who are truly serving Christ, but there are some minor differences perhaps. Okay, how do you handle that? Christ-centered generosity. Christ-centered generosity. You belong to Christ, they belong to Christ, they don't belong to you. And the Lord will bring to light all things when he comes. You know, and, and Jesus says in Mark chapter, or in Matthew chapter seven, there, there will be people who on that last day, but notice it's on that last day, say, Lord, Lord, we, we did all these things. And he'll say, I never knew you, depart from me. Okay, but those people were shocked. They were self-deceived. And so there's a reality that we trust the Lord. We look at what God says, we exercise discernment with the word of God and by examining the fruit but ultimately it's going to be the Lord who judges. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we are at liberty to set aside our pride and exercise Christ-centered generosity as the Lord instructs us in this passage. Well, we've seen the characteristic of a critical spirit Sinful exclusivity, the cure for a critical spirit is Christ-centered generosity. And the third point this evening is very different. I hope it'll be helpful. The third point is cases from Scripture and church history. Now you think, oh boy, you mean we're just getting started tonight? No, I think, I think we'll be able to get through this in a timely manner, and I hope it will be helpful. Cases from, from Scripture and church history. A couple of scriptural examples of what this looks like in a positive manner. Turn over to Acts chapter 18. 
Acts chapter 18. At the end of Acts 18, we're introduced to a Jew named Apollos. In verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the the baptism of John. He began to, to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." So what do we have here? It's very simple. Apollos was fervent in spirit. He was preaching. He loved the Scripture. He loved the Lord. But he was not fully aware of the fullness of the work of Christ. So what did Priscilla and Aquila do? They, they took him in and they instructed him. And he responded to that and became a powerful preacher for the sake of Christ. In the next chapter... You have something similar when in chapter 19, the very next passage, Paul passes through the inland country and comes to Ephesus, and there he found disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. So again, these men, they were following what they knew but they needed more clarity. They needed more understanding. And so Paul taught them and they responded and they were baptized in following Christ. And so there, are, there were many times where, where people in Scripture had an incomplete understanding of what it meant to follow Christ. They were doing the best they could with what they had but when they understood there was more, they received it. And they grew and continued to serve the Lord. The Apostle Paul, particularly, and, and a Pr- Pr- Priscilla and Aquila, were exercising a Christ-centered generosity and coming alongside these people and training them. There's also a few church history examples that I think are worth considering by way of illustration as we close tonight. First of all, a few statements from Ian Murray. Ian Murray is a gifted church historian with ministerial background. He was actually an assistant pastor to Lloyd-Jones. And in a book that it's, it's 
long, but it's excellent, Revival and Revivalism, a book that he traces the, the onset of pragmatism in American Christianity largely through the altar call and through all kinds of gimmicks to get people to come to Christ and, and helps us understand where all of this came from. As he comes to the end of that book, as Ian e. Murray often does, he makes some very helpful observations. And one of the observations he makes is regarding a rising generation of sound preachers. So as he's, as he's laid out, you know, there was, there was a time when there were very few sound preachers. But as God continues to raise up men who love God and love the Scripture, you know, his, he's very optimistic about what the Lord will do. But listen to what he says about that rising generation of preachers. He says, they will not be identical in all points with men of the past, but there will be a fundamental resemblance. They will be hard students of Scripture. They will prize a great spiritual heritage, and they will see the danger of unsanctified learning. While not afraid of controversy, and this is one of those statements that just as you're amazed at how much insight Ian Murray has, while not afraid of controversy, so while not afraid of being able to call false prophets false prophets, nor of being called hyper-Orthodox, right? So not being afraid to be doctrinally sound and to hold to the doctrines of Scripture, while not being afraid of controversy, nor of being called hyper-Orthodox, yet they will fear to spend their days in in controversy. And in, in that statement, he's just capturing this, the, this, the Christ-centered generosity. Look, it might look a little different, but where it counts, where it's fundamental, they'll be sound. And then regarding the assessment of past generations, including even some of the practices he defines as wood, hay, and stubble, he gives a very valuable insight. He doesn't endorse the things that were done, but he gives a generous assessment that's stated by a seasoned minister of the gospel and a student of history. So listen carefully, because as a Calvinist, Murray observes this. Calvinists have sometimes been inclined to deny God's sovereignty by imagining that his working is always in proportion to the doctrinal correctness of the earthen vessels which he employs. But such is God's mercy that his blessing may also be found even among wood, hay, and stubble, as was the case in Corinth." And again, the value of that observation, it's not an endorsement of wood, hay, and stubble, but it's an understanding, again, that the Lord in his mercy and grace uses many things for his glory and for his honor. And we can honor God 
by acknowledging God's sovereignty to do that because, again, we belong to God and they belong to God. How does this work out in real-time relationships? Well, one final example. There were two men in the mid-18th century, the 1700s, one named John Wesley, you've probably heard that name, and another named George Whitfield. And they ministered together for many years, but as they pursued ministry, they diverged significantly in significant doctrinal areas. And John Wesley was, was quite aggressive against George Whitfield and against his doctrines of grace against George Whitfield's preaching of the doctrines of grace and there was a lot of there's a lot of documented correspondence between them nevertheless Whitfield maintained his relationship with Wesley over the years and you know while there was some pretty uh, intense conversations throughout the years as Wesley was about to die, or so it was thought. Whitfield wrote to Wesley, thinking that he would not make it to his side. And listen to, listen to what Whitfield says in this letter to John Wesley, with whom he differed significantly. But yet, as he's thinking that Wesley is on the threshold of eternity, Whitfield wrote, I pity myself and the church but not you. A radiant a throne awaits you, and ere long you will enter into your master's joy. Yonder he stands with a crown, ready to put it on your head amidst an admiring throng of saints and angels. What Christ-centered generosity. Later on, someone asked Whitfield whether he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven? You know, that's a good question when we're thinking about exclusivity and critical spirit. Will I see this person in heaven? Listen to Whitfield's reply. I fear not. For he will be so near the eternal throne and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get a sight of him. Christ-centered generosity. It begins when we realize who we are before Christ. What Christ has done to save us. And Christ works to humble us of our pride to the point that we can look at others who serve in the name of Christ. Yeah, maybe not part of our group, but others who serve in the name of Christ and say, you know what? I don't know that I'll see them in heaven because they're going to be so close to the throne of grace and me so far away. Pride criticizes others who are serving Christ. The characteristic is exclu sinful exclusivity. The cure is Christ-centered generosity. 
The kingdom of God is not broader than Scripture, right? Let's be clear about that. I told you I'd come back around and clarify the statement. The kingdom of God is not broader than Scripture. The kingdom of God is not broader than the Christ of Scripture. Make no mistake. But the kingdom of God is larger than our experience of it. Thomas Brooks says, A humble soul cannot, a humble soul dares not call anything little that has Christ in it. And in contrast, he says this, A proud heart always prizes himself above the market. He reckons his own pennies for dollars and others dollars for pennies. All pearls are counterfeit but what he wears. May the Lord deliver us from that spirit and give us the Christ-centered generosity that says, you know what? That person is going to be so close to the throne of grace. Me so far, I don't know that I'll see him in heaven. Jesus said, as we close in Mark 9, that last verse, Mark 9, 41, Disciples, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Father, we thank you tonight that you sent Christ to deliver us from our sinful pride. We thank you for the mercy of Christ, the saving mercy of Christ. And we recognize, we confess our need for your continued work to change us into the image of Christ. Oh Lord, give us, give us a generosity that is characterized by and centered on Jesus Christ. Protect us from ourselves. Help us, Lord, to not seek great things for ourselves, but to take up our cross and to follow our dear Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.